You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. E.L. Doctorow is the author of Ragtime, Billy Bathgate, The Book of Daniel, The Waterworks, World's Fair, and The March. He's received the National Book Award, three National Book Critics Circles Award, two Penn Faulkner Awards, and the National Humanities Medal. His latest novel is Homer and Langley. His newest collection of short stories is All the Time in the World. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. May I call you Edgar? Sure. Edgar. At the very beginning of this book, you give us a preface, and I think it's absolutely critical to understanding, getting a real good grip in the stories on this book, in this book, because you talk about the difference between stories and novels. You describe your novels as a generative, where one sentence leads to another, and short stories as almost like images, snapshots, uh, situations is what you call them. Yeah, the, uh, most of these stories, the situation and the characters come to you uh, and they're indissoluble. Um, this situation uh, only comes to this character and this character only comes to this situation. But a novel is more exploratory or certainly uh, more extensively so that you begin or I begin with an image or some slight evocative state of mind that I explore and if I'm lucky it turns into uh, to a novel starts with an image or uh, even a piece of music or uh, as I say in there a presiding anger but the stories uh, uh, sort of make themselves known uh, they're assertive they're de they declare themselves and while you still have to work through them you always have a sense of where you're going and how, how things will end. You, you know, you describe, um, too, your stories as people being kind of separate from their environments. There's a, a, a separation there. And it reminds me almost of like a, a diorama in some ways. Well, that's one way of looking at it. The, the Possibly the uh, that's true of stories generally because the scale of a story is such that you, you more or less concentrate on one or two people. And um, in, the, in a sense, the rest of the world is excluded. Uh, and so uh, it is true that, uh, that the characters in these stories are somehow distinct from uh, their, uh, the world they live in, the social world they live in. There's less of a social world in a story than there is in a novel, of course. There have been uh, critics who've said that novels are basically uh, social events, where stories are not necessarily so. I like that idea. Novel is a social event. You know, um, speaking of, I love the character of Wakefield. He, he is, and, and what he does, mm -hmm. and, and he's such an interesting uh, story. And so. Talk about this kind. Of, there's all these stories are, I think, a little bit weird. Yeah, I'll accept weird. <laughs> and, I, and I like how they're weird. They're they're a lot of fun. So, 
Wakefield's story is a story of transformation. He starts out as kind of a normal guy, but a little, something a little bit hits him, it's off kilter, yeah. and it just throws him down. A yeah, well, alley. you know that um, the story was inspired by a story of Hawthorne's, Nathaniel Hawthorne, called, oddly enough, Wakefield. <laughs> In that story, uh, he's bemused and fascinated by man named Wakefield in London, I think, as I read it a long time ago in the 18th century, who says goodbye to his wife one day, walks out the door and doesn't come back for 20 years, although he takes rooms somewhere not far from her. But I suppose in crowded London, one could do that and never meet the person again. So uh, in that story, Hawthorne suggests uh, as his, his bewilderment and, and his puzzlement that maybe the reader should um, do his own story of this kind uh, because it's so odd and peculiar and uh, not terribly estimable to do something like that, walk out on your wife and take a room a few blocks away for 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, so he does recommend that the reader do something of a sort, so I did. And my Wakefield is a lawyer living in the suburbs and uh, having a, a tense marriage uh, and two children and comes home one evening after everything has gone wrong on the trip home, the train, uh, commuter train has left, leaving him in the last car, which happened not to have been connected. <laughs> the rest of the train, then he comes home and there's a blackout, and then he walks home through the streets and hears a noise in the unattached garage next to, in, on his property, and goes to investigate and sees that it's a raccoon, and somehow he ends up chasing the raccoon um, pups out of the attic over the garage and it's very dusty and filled with a lot of junk and stuff and he sits down happens to fall asleep all night and then in stages he he finds reasons not to go into his home the next morning and slowly over time uh, stays apart from them and spies on them and uh, becomes a kind of derelict living off the land foraging in neighbors' garbage cans and that kind of thing. Uh, it's a strange, it's a strange piece, but uh, uh, don't blame me, blame Hawthorne. <laughs> well, I love your sense of the suburbs in this. It, as a kind of an environment, you really, really nail what it's like to live in the suburbs. And I've lived in the suburbs all my life, and I've spent a fair amount of time in the suburbs late at night, kind of just looking around, and you really evoke that sense of separateness, of, a, of there being a different world. And he, in fact, believes he's in, a, in the nocturnal world. Yes, he, he uh, speaks of the homes he passes uh, uh, as um, um, a means of people to live secret lives uh, in their, uh, sealed in their homes. That's his sense as he walks through the dark streets during the blackout. But you know, I lived in the suburbs myself for many years. Raised three children in the suburbs. It's probably a mistake. Uh, why, why do you say it was a mistake? Well, I don't know. We wanted grass for them to run around in. And if you live in the city, you have to go out with your children all the time. And right. 
so they, I suppose it was a good thing for them. But when we left that house, we, my children now grown, I, I offered each of them the house. <laughs> None of them wanted it. Really? Yes. <laughs> I suppose that's uh, normal. You don't want to live forever in the house you grew up in. But uh, there's another story in that collection that um, uh, called um, Edgemont Drive takes place in a Jersey suburb. I don't know if you read that. Oh, one. yeah, it's a wonderful story. All dialogue. Yes, that, that was interesting because um, um, it started out, uh, there's an example of a story that uh, was both exploratory uh, in the technique, but I had a sense of what I wanted to do in that story from beginning to end. But the husband asks the wife, what kind of car was it? And she doesn't know how to, you know, she didn't pay attention to the make of the car. And, so, and they have this conversation, and about a page or two through, I realized that's the way the story was going to work. It was going to work totally in dialogue. It seemed like a dare you made yourself. Well, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it was interesting. We, you accomplish an awful lot. You represent character. You, um, you get through a lot of action and a lot of detail very efficiently when you do that. This is what playwrights know, of course. And they, um, a man comes who has lived in that house as, uh, years ago and is coming back to take a look at it. And he comes into the house and uh, feels that he's really never left spiritually. And I won't tell you, we won't say how it ends, but... Uh, a stranger arriving uh, as of a philosophical bent. And I, I think, for me, what I like about those stories, and I, have, I guess I have kind of a bee in my bonnet about this of late, is that I think there's a peculiar strain of American, very realistic stories that yet draw their feel from ghost stories. And I think both um, uh, Wakefield and Edgemont Drive have big elements of ghost stories. In both stories, somebody is haunting the house, even if they're alive. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And, they ha and, and two, and one of the things about Edgemont Drive I like is that um, in terms of the way you develop the plot, it's what I call a relevatory plot. Rather than things happening, that what keeps us reading uh, aside from the fantastic dialogue, is to find out, to reveal the situation. And we don't want to reveal the situation, what happens mm. ultimately. But I think that's a really effective way to plot, especially when you have such a nice reveal up your sleeve as you do. Yeah, well, things do happen off stage in that, in uh, Edgemont Drive. Mm -hmm. But your idea about uh, ghost story, relevance to ghost story, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I tend to accept uh, interpretations of my pieces of um, if they're reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really, as I say, I, it's just something I, I've been reading uh, some of the work of a British writer, Robert Aikman. I don't know him. He's a mid-60s writer. He wrote what he called strange stories. And um, they have a lot of this kind of similar feel. It, it's a little, his stories, it's a little bit harder to tell whether something strange is really happening or not. But uh, this feeling of the way we inhabit the spaces we live in. In a sense, wherever we live, we're sort of haunting, and you can 
that haunting is not a, is a term that's not only used with reference to ghosts. Often you say, you know, haunt. It's these are his haunts when you know the bars he goes to. Yeah. Well, the visitor in Edgemont Drive suggests that he lived in this house for such a long time that it it was a kind of an architectural rendering of himself that the, the, as he walked through the halls and the way the light came through this room or that room, it was as if he was projected into the house and that he was the ghost haunting the house. Uh, it, it's very strange what he, the effect he has on the couple who have, who have allowed him in the house. Well, the wife has allowed him in the house. The husband was generally antagonistic. But that idea of haunting is uh, definitely in that story. I hadn't thought of Wakefield uh, in that sense, though I, I thought of him as a um, sort of making decisions sort of almost accidentally, inadvertently, in the way people do without mm -hmm. conscious thought. And it sort of drifts into this uh, new life um, why uh, it's, I don't think he understands why. But of course, people who are married and live in suburbs, there's always this conflict between stability and uh, safety and freedom. And uh, he seems to find himself liberated in uh, fending for himself without credit cards, money, keys, or any of what he thinks of the impediments of of uh, middle class, upper middle class life. So uh, he gets to be pleased with himself. And then of course he, he wonders who his wife is beginning to see. <laughs> and, and that changes his whole mindset. And, and you have a lot of fun with the plotting in the story. And you know, one of the things about Edgemont Drive is it's really funny. And I love the, the relationship between the man and the wife is very prickly. It's very funny, and there's a great line in there where she says, and this is a term I will confess, I have, that's been directed at me more times than I care to admit, it's all about you, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is a kind of, that just took me back to a book I read a bazillion years ago called The Culture of Narcissism by mm. Christopher Lash. Yeah, I remember that book, yeah. And I, I think that that's, an, that's a, still a pertinent comment on America. Yeah, well, the guy, he's got his problems, but uh, someone said, will that marriage last? <laughs> and I, I didn't think about it too much. I, I think it might. It'd still be a little tricky, but I think it might endure. <laughs> It'll be prickly and fun, and yeah. I think it would last. It'll yeah. just be prickly and yeah. fun. Yeah. But uh, I hadn't thought about that till that question was asked. <laughs> Amazing how people, readers, project mm -hmm. beyond the, the story. Uh, uh, there's another story uh, in there about uh, uh, Jolene and life. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. So, story. Um, but uh, you know, she ends up uh, in as a graphic book artist yeah, and, now and, uh, having, having lost her child to her ex-husband and and then someone said to me uh, what's going to happen to her now or in the march in the novel the march is a character pearl mm -hmm. a young black woman who sort of educates herself during the march 
and begins to think about moving out into the world. And, uh, and then the book ends. <laughs> Someone said, well, what happens to Pearl? What is she going to do? And I, I think that's good when, when readers do that. But of course, I always say, uh, that's it for me and Pearl. I'm not going to do a sequel or anything. Or with Jolene, in fact. Um, or even with Wakefield, because Wakefield sends us right out on the precipice. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's really fun. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I think your story makes your stories so entertaining, is that while we do get that kind of dioramic diorama feel, or you know, like a, a one act play feel in the story, mm -hmm. that's that gives us that concentrated uh, out the espresso of literature. Um, you also have give us a real feel that there's something beyond the edges in yeah. front of and behind the story. We, we get the feel for the characters coming up. And I think a good example of that is assimilation, yeah. um, where we have a story where uh, there's a whole kind of enterprise, the Boroslavs. <laughs> mm. Yeah. As the young dishwasher is invited to marry a um, foreign woman, go across uh, for green card purposes, and he gets involved with that. But you're saying uh, something interesting to me that it is true, for instance, that um, Edgemont Drive is a very compact story, but most of these stories have, have extension to them. One of the things, um, the, the classic modern short story developed by Joyce and practiced by Hemingway, where it, uh, the entry point is very close to the denouement. And there's this moment of, of revelation when things will never be the same for, for the main character, however the story goes. And it's a very tight, compact uh, sense of things. But several years ago, I edited an anthology of short stories where the publisher gives you a big pack of stories without you knowing who's written them. And it turned out a lot of them had extension. They were they were not in the modern classic mode of story writing. They, they were, they harked back the detail of the 19th century, where it starts here and goes through several events and it ends there. And I, that pleased me because I've never been comfortable as a short story writer with that very compact sense of things. And, uh, and I think most of the stories in this book show that I, I prefer the, the more extended tale uh, rather than the, uh, the epiphanic sense of a, of a structured piece. I love that word, tale. That's such a great, uh, that's such an evocative word because it really um, harkens back to, you know, a more, something that really grabs the reader. You know, epiphany is a word that might kind of frighten a reader in a tale. You were going to tell me a tale? I'm going to listen. Yeah. <laughs> like something you might hear in a bar. Yeah, right. Well, I think most of these stories uh, do have, have that kind of extension. Not that I ever uh, consciously plan them that way. I just, it turns out I'm more comfortable, perhaps as, as more a novelist than a short story writer, with, uh, with ha having more room somehow. But as I say, the Edgemont Drive is an, is an exception to, to that. Now, assimilation is, is a, um, uh, 
here's an interesting thing. This young um, Latino Ramon uh, wanders into a restaurant and takes a job as a dishwasher. It's a restaurant run by the sort of Eastern Russian crowd and is persuaded to marry, go across to Eastern Europe and marry this young woman and bring her back. Uh, as she aspires to a green card and essential citizenship. He gets involved with these people and uh, it turns out that he's a very stubborn young man and believes that having married her, he's really her husband. <laughs> <laughs> What's great is the sense you give us of how he at first begins to deceive. He's, at first he's somewhat hesitant to admit it, yeah. but pretty soon the reader knows before he knows yeah. that he's in love. Yeah, he's attracted to her. And uh, she, of course, repels him and has her own agenda and uh, says to him, you, you know, you're very odd, she says to him. But, um, some reader picked up on something I hadn't even realized. And this is why fiction is so fascinating. The last line of the story, um, he takes her away from this restaurant crowd with a sense of their mob connections and flees to his brother's house. His brother is an ex-con who happens to be a major drug dealer in New York City. And he's now holding the girl's hand. And the brother is amazed and says, uh, pours him some champagne and says, let the war begin. Now, when I wrote that line, my sense of the war was the established drug community as opposed to the aspiring criminal community out in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. But what he's done, Ramon, is he's taken her from her community and brought him, brought her home. And when Leon, the older brother, says, let the war begin, I did a reading of this story and some, some, someone got up and said, that's the Iliad. <laughs> wow, that's great. And I, I didn't realize that. I mean, uh, consciously, that it does track that same kind of episode where Paris takes Helen sure. away and, Let and the, the war, war begins. begins. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's what's so remarkable about it. Sometimes uh, when you don't really consciously know what you're doing, uh, the story or the piece will work out very well. Well, that's one of the things that's so interesting about your fiction is you write with a kind of clarity, I think, that allows the reader to dream their way into the story mm. and gives us really a lot of uh, play in the story. And one of the things that you do really well in this book is you are, have a very chameleonic prose style. You are all over the map. I mean, other than the superbly high quality and a certain kind of, uh, I don't know what, how to put it, there's some kind of sense that connects all the prose. I think it's just, uh, it, it's like it's all carved out of the same mahogany or something, or mm. the same knife. 
but yeah. you're sometimes you're sometimes you're carving a classic table. Sometimes you're carving a wild esoteric dresser. Mm. Um, but you are all. You know. Well, the the um, I. I'm thinking of belly nut bathgate. I mean, yeah, well, those, those are those are literally like these, these beautiful, dense, one and a half page prose poems. Yeah, but that old that, that comes of the voice you find for mm. the book or the story, and that is that's the determining factor as to what people call style. Mm -hmm. When you're really a ventriloquist and you're speaking in this or that voice, and when you're doing first person which is a very useful device because the, uh, the narrator is part of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, so there's a sign of economy in that. Um, uh, you're, you're captured by the voice and you can only do it. And if you're not doing it, if you wander out of it, everything just gets flat. Uh, so. Uh, that's why I've said in the past that, that um, I don't think I have a style. I think the individual pieces or books have a style, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I'm, I don't hear my own voice, fortunately, when I'm writing, even if it's in the third person. But of course, that's an illusion that I have to maintain. Um, one of the things that worries me is about um, the I remember reading about Hemingway's suicide, and um, figuring out that he began to hear his own voice too much and uh, repeat himself, and he seemed sort of locked in that uh, the inventions he brilliant inventions he created for how to tell a story. Uh, you always stay in time. You always in scene. Uh, you never explain the issue that the characters are dealing with. You have to, reader will have to figure that. Out. He had all these structures and strategies for, for stories and novels, and finally, they. This is my reading of. You know, he had a lot of personal problems. But he he began to hear his own voice, and it, uh, it's the worst thing that can happen, I think, to a writer. He hemmed himself in. And what? He hemmed himself in. I, th I think so. I think it, it was a kind of a sense of despair of, in addition to everything else. One of the things I think that is so wonderful in this book, uh, you really, for, for a man who writes the finest of fine literature, I mean, just this, these stories really speak to us with their quality. The characters tend to be not such fine people. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's not very many admirable people we're going to find in this book. Well, the young man and the writer in the family, I it, think, He's beautiful. He's, he, um, he learns from writing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of a parable, in addition to everything else, of, of, of the kind of knowledge writers have from writing mm -hmm. without having it otherwise. <laughs> and, um, uh, I like him, uh, the young, the young boy, in that. So they're not all. Um, no, I guess you're right. That, yeah, the, the writer of the family. Yeah. No, but we look at the. I mean, I, a house on the plains. Oh, I, I <laughs> just, I just read that last night to to an audience here, and uh, it went over. I think it went over well. 
Uh, that story is based on uh, loosely on an actual woman who was this depraved murderess who had uh, a farm. It wasn't in uh, Illinois. I might have been Missouri. But when the story was published, um, I got a letter from someone who, uh, was, who lived in the neighborhood. He said, oh yeah, that's, we call that the murder farm. <laughs> that's, we, we, we all know about that. And so she, um, she had this habit of knocking off her husband's and taking the insurance policies. And, and she and her son um, flee Chicago um, and take a house in the plains in La Ville, Illinois, and turn that into a, an operation uh, that draws immigrants from the Midwest by luring them to this farm as, as co, as investors and possible marriage suitors to this woman. And the story is told by her son. I love the way it's revealed too what's going on because at first we don't exactly know but you do a great job in this of <clears throat> layering us, leading us in and we, we like him at first, yeah. kind of. <laughs> then we find yeah. out he's not such a... Yeah, the, the, uh, uh, that story works because what's really going on is, is alluded to uh, and they know it but the reader doesn't quite know that clearly although it begins to become apparent. There was a, an actual program in the cities and in New York to take orphan children and find homes for them out in the country. <laughs> and she takes three children to, to present them as a family uh, to the local community in La Ville, takes them to church and everything. So she and her son Earl and the three little kids are he thinks of them as, as like a, a department store family because they've been assembled. And then she says to Earl one day, you know, uh, everything's working, but we're running out of money and we're going to have to figure out what to do soon or I'm going to do something about the insurance policies for these children. <laughs> yeah, at that point we know things, it's, it's yeah. a bad sign. Yeah, that, that I think is when the reads begins to... <laughs> <laughs> Wonder, but there, there too. I think what I'm doing, where the people in the story know what's going on, mm -hmm. but they don't explicate it. They, uh, so the major issue, the major bit of information the reader needs, mm -hmm. can only slowly become apparent as it's alluded to. Yeah, it's plot by revelation. Yeah, sort of. That's right. Anyway, uh, uh, it's a good story to read aloud to people because they begin to, uh, and there are some funny things in funny places. And so um, you know, some stories read well aloud, others don't, mm -hmm. um, which has nothing to do with their, their quality. Uh, I did a reading in New York of the Edgemont Drive and uh, suggested to the host that we hire a couple of actors Oh, yeah. So it was a little playlet, and I played um, the visitor, and the two <laughs> actors. The, but the trouble with actors is, though, is that they act. Mm. And um, it's enough to sort of read the lines expressively, mm. and you don't really have to give that much to them, uh, uh, because the meaning is, and the characterization is there in the lines. Right. 
But actors don't know that. They've, they have to impress there. So uh, they were, they were well-intentioned and very nice actors, good actors. They just gave it a little too much, more than it needed. It's the difference between a play and a story is yeah. you, the way you experience a play is you look at it and you look at the characters. Yeah. Whereas a story is a, you ha enter this kind of space where you um, engage the prose, what the, um, one writer calls the prose portal. You open the prose portal and you go through it and all of a sudden you'll enter this world where prose becomes a world in itself and yeah. creates things. And yeah. I think that's a fundamental difference so I can see why the difference between somebody just having it, hiring a man and a woman to just read the lines fairly hmm. non-emotively would have yeah, yielded a more even-handed experience. But it was, it was fun. I'm glad we did that. And uh, you know, these audiobooks where they do hire, the companies do hire actors to read. Is there an audiobook of this? Yeah. I would uh, imagine so. Yes, there is. There is. And it, uh, the reader is a very fine actor for most of the story named John Rubenstein, and oh, they, yeah. they, they, uh, Rubenstein, they, they did this in Los Angeles. I haven't heard it yet, but I hear that it's pretty good. But not all actors know how to read. Mm. That when you're reading a book um, aloud, it's somewhere between someone reading it privately and, and acting, there's a, there's a intermediate range there that the actor has to be in. And one actor who succeeded terrifically was the guy who read The March mm -hmm. for the Unexpurgated Random House audiobook, uh, Joe Morton. He did a magnificent job mm. because he found that territory between acting and just reading. Mm. It's, it's somewhere. I think he was brother from another planet. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Rubenstein was in a TV series I used to watch from back in the day called Crazy Like a Fox. Well, I never saw that, <laughs> uh, but he was also in a, a movie uh, that was made of the Book of Daniel. Oh, really? By Sidney Lumet. Yeah, mm -hmm. he played a major role in that. He was excellent. Now, um, one of the, the stories I like in here a lot is Walter John Harmon. That is such an interesting story. And I, how this is about a, a, a religious cult, and you do some really fun stuff with it. How now? I know that you like to do just enough research, mm. and that's one of the things I think that makes your story so well, so good, is because it seems to me you get a sense of a situation, but you leave yourself enough room to, as a writer, imagine it and make sure that you're the central spark of the story. Well, all the uh, terms of this particular uh, religious cult are invented. Mm -hmm. where they talk about attainments and obligations and have these different so cat perfect. <laughs> cat categories of, uh, that establish the discipline mm -hmm. uh, for the adherence of this religion. And uh, that's all made up and the uh, the idea of this charismatic ex-car thief <laughs> who, who um, somehow um, has created this myth around himself, uh, attracting some very intelligent people who deny, of course, that they're cultists or that they've been taken. 
and they have this land that they uh, where the holy city is going to descend and and uh, you read the book of revelation you can get everything you need for this kind of thing and, um, uh, but i was intrigued by that because uh, the narrator is a very intelligent man he's a lawyer he's a uh, and his wife uh, uh, came to this guy through the internet, hearing about him on the internet, and uh, he, he works to defend the cult mm -hmm. and the leader, Walter John Harmon, from various legal agencies in the county and in the state who are objecting to the fact that the only book that children in this community are allowed to read are, is, is the Book of Revelation. And so uh, are they violating the uh, standards of state standards of education for children. And this kind of thing, he defends them le uh, legally. But then um, uh, something happens that uh, uh, Walter John Harmon um, disappears with this narrator's wife. <laughs> and uh, in a sense, he, the narrator is exalted because of that, because uh, the the betrayal of the of the cult is a sign that the leader has taken on himself the ultimate sin, which is what he'd always predicted he would do. <laughs> so there's a kind of irony there, but, um, but the idea of this sort of community and how attractive it is to people and how their lives are suddenly ordered in, and, and they're no longer obsessed with their own freedom and frightened by it seems to me a true uh, way to understand uh, the appeal of, of groups of this sort to say nothing of major religions. <laughs> well, you know, too, <clears throat> I think like all the stories in this book, that's a very American story. I mean, these things, you don't, this doesn't happen in Germany that, that, that we know of. It. This doesn't happen in England. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a very American phenomenon. That's one of the things I like about your stories, all the stories in this book. These are, this, this is like a, a, the pulse, the backbone of America, all these stories. It gives us a really great picture of what it's like to live here now. If you read every story in this book, I, this tells you more about what it's like to live in America than see, than 48 hours, two weeks of CNN is going to tell you. Well, uh, thank you. That's lovely. Uh, these stories have been written over a, a long period of time, and in collecting them, is um, choosing them, is, uh, I only became aware of the range, territorial range, suburban stories, Midwestern stories. Uh, people travel a lot in them, the New York City story, Western Pennsylvania or New mm -hmm. England, or what. and um, it's quite different from the kind of book, say, that Winesburg, Ohio is, mm. where a specific place is mined for its uh, sort of as a kind of literary America, mm -hmm. or what Joyce did with Dublin. Uh, this is not that. This is different. They, but, uh, of course, it's there true was to no America. There was there was no major intention behind these stories. Were all written separately over a period of time, mm -hmm. uh, without 
any um, sense of the other stories. Each one had its own individual uh, eventfulness mm -hmm. in my mind, and uh, I did them and published them in magazines, and that was that. It's only when we assembled these that I began to understand that they do range all over the country. That's really interesting. Now, um, talk about uh, which story in here was the one that became a, a novel? There's like three of them. That uh, that's Heist. Mm -hmm. uh, Heist is the uh, story of a, an Episcopal uh, priest who has a rather uh, impoverished uh, parish on the Lower East Side of New York City. Father Tom Pembroke. Yeah, Pemberton. And he, mm -hmm. he uh, finds that he, he's on the Lower East Side and things, he's, he keeps getting robbed that the cups and saucers <laughs> of the sisterhood have, are taken away and then uh, pieces of, a little piece of the church are, and he can't, he goes in, around town and buys them back, he buys the chorus of robes back from a peddler. He buys the, the uh, cups and saucers from a, a, a second-hand place in the Bowery, and he's going about trying to reassemble his church, and then one day the big cross behind the altar, a uh, big brass cross, is gone, mm -hmm. leaving only the shadow on the wall. And uh, he, that just does him in practically, and then he gets a call, a lot of calls of people trying to help, and it's all nonsense. And the cops say, you know, a brass cross that won't, it doesn't sell on the street. <laughs> and then he gets a call from a rabbi who has a very small, very progressive um, uh, kind of synagogue on in, uh, West 98th Street or something, who says the cross is on the roof of his synagogue. <laughs> and, uh, and so he meets the rabbi who's married to a rabbi and he sort of falls in love with the wife rabbi and uh, they attempt to solve this mystery. Uh, that's, what the, that's what the story is. But that became, um, that became the sort of the spine of the uh, novel called City of God. Uh, which is in the form of a day book of a writer who hears about this stolen cross and goes out and meets the priest and becomes his friend and gets involved with the, uh, all three uh, of these religious people. And, uh, and it turns out that Sarah Blumenthal, the young woman rabbi, is the daughter of a Holocaust survivor and so the book veers off into that, um, her father's experiences as a boy in the ghetto. And so the whole book kind of expands uh, from this situation and this story. So the heist was a very uh, useful thing for me to do and I must have realized that I could do more with it, that it wasn't, it wasn't enough. But it, I think it works, it works as a story. But, <clears throat> it works beautifully as a story. Yeah, but uh, I'm glad I did the novel based on it. Yeah. It's a lot of fun to read. It's, it has a, the prose in that I think has a very nice feel to it. It's, it's playful, I think. And, and that's one of the things you're, sometimes you write prose that's just so, so gorgeous. I'm thinking of, of Willie, although Willie's 
disturbing, but it's also getting no. gorgeous in its own disturbing yeah. manner. Willie is, takes place in Europe. Willie is based on an actual um, story I read about the one of Freud's early um, accomplices <laughs> was uh, Wilhelm Reich, who was mm -hmm. a very creative, um, uh, brilliant young analyst who made real contributions in the early days of psychoanalysis. For instance, saying you didn't have to even bother with people's dreams, just see the way they, what their body posture was and how they talked and what language they used. Everything was expressive of what the analyst should find out. Anyway, Reich tells the story of, of how he discovered his mother in fragrant delicto with uh, someone on her husband and uh, told his father about it and the whole family was destroyed. So that's how Willie came to be written. It's, it's such a beautiful story that talk about the kind of prose style for that because it's very different, say, from Edgemont Drive or Wakefield. <clears throat> when you immerse yourself in that, is it kind of like a dream? Because that's the way the story reads. Almost. Well, he does. He, he's the child describes a kind of ecstatic feeling on a summer day when he's rolling around the grass and feeling part of the universe, and he's uh, the sun and. The and he rolls down the hill and to the barn and only accidentally looks in the window and sees his his mother and uh, but the that sort of ecstatic sense of a young boy's um, uh, sense of what it means to be alive as it runs into this moment of deprav depravity um, <laughs> But the, the, the consciousness of the, the style or the voice of the kid, which begins in ecstasy, continues uh, in that kind of uh, suspended sentence, uh, extended uh, rumination. So that's, that's why the story is told the way it is. Now, um, I also really liked The Hunter, which is kind of almost a, a science fiction story in a way. It's, or it's not set in the current day. It's a little bit just a... Well, um, that's one of the earliest stories I wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very puzzling story. The young woman teacher in this town, I guess it's in New England, uh, in the winter. and. Uh, She's the only teacher in the school, and, um, and then there's a young man who drives the kids to school in a school bus, and then uh, uh, she goes exploring one day and uh, climbs up into a ruined house and where the ice is hanging from the ceiling like the moon, and she steps into the window, and someone takes a shot at her, some, some hunter from the woods far away. That's what happens in the story. And uh, I'm trying to remember the mood I was in when I wrote that. It was, that story came out of, I, I guess, seeing a town that, like that, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of a dismal, impoverished town with a school almost entirely closed and, and some sort of idealistic, uh, and the sense of what if a teacher would took that job, what would happen? 
what would the town be? What would her life be like? And then, so that's how that story came to be written. But I don't, uh, I didn't, I didn't see it as any kind of science fiction oh. thing. But you were entitled to that. <laughs> well, I had a feeling that it took place, you know, about 20 years after the financial collapse. <laughs> oh. I, well, no, that story was written. Uh, oh, that story was written in the 80s, mm. early 80s, I think. Well, yeah. one of the things that, that interests me about all the stories in this book is um, the sense of the way that you develop this idea of a situation that, that you talk about in the preface. <clears throat> and, and I think that when we look at the stories this way, each of these stories presents us with a kind of a nice core situation. I think that's a really interesting way because that's, I think, what gives us the, the, them the feeling of a tale of something before and after. Mm. And you, you really give us a sense of uh, openness in all of these stories that there's a, I guess, we feel that we could dip in and out of them. Mm. Well, um, that's good. That, what you're saying is good. I, I, uh, I left out some stories that I've written. Uh, I didn't somehow didn't think they they belonged in this book. The 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 story to me that is the most mysterious and unnerving. Um, we haven't talked about it yet. It's the last one mm -hmm. all the time in the world, and that um, people are not crazy about that story. <laughs> uh, it is a very strange piece. It, uh, the editor of the Kenyan Review, David Lynn, mm -hmm. published it, and he said it, he was unnerved by it, and I was unnerved writing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about creating the world of all the time in the world. Well, some people have really misinterpreted that story, mm -hmm. but it calls out for misinterpretation somehow. Um, it, it is not meant to be realistic. In fact, it, it operates on a kind of a, a principle of repetitive images. Mm -hmm. um, images of dogs and old ladies with walkers and somehow um, Mongolia and children with violent cases on their backs. Uh, and, and, um, and we just circulate through uh, these images or the, or the way I was writing oh, and building constructions that go up sort of automatically and instantly in the city and the the voice of the story is of this man who begins to feel totally out of place in, in his city mm -hmm. and uh, everything everything he sees alienates him and he doesn't quite understand it and he has it habit of calling people on the phone and he said where am I what's going on and he said and they tell him um, uh, you'll, you'll find out eventually and he says what will I find out and they say if we knew <laughs> and, um, and that's the way the story goes and it's a um, I imagine he's supposed to realize that he's not on Earth anymore. Mm. Uh, um, but uh, there have been several readings of the story that have nothing to do with what I thought I was doing. Uh, 
Someone said it was a, told me they'd read a review that it was really about a Mongolian immigrant. It's not about a Mongolian immigrant. It's, it's about a man who, um, who thinks different thoughts, and one of them is about Mongolia. <laughs> well, it's anyway, uh, so it's a strange piece, and I, I suspect um, uh, the, my editor um, loves this, loves the story, and thought it should take the title of the book. book. Well, I, I really like it because I think, it, in a sense, it's the ultimate expression of the uh, of the people who are separated from their surroundings. Oh yes, that's right. That's very good. I mean, it's it's the yeah. ultimate expression of that. This this man, his only connection to the surroundings are are these kind of repetitive word loops and prose loops, and yeah. it, in that sense, it has an almost a computer generated feel. Mm. Well, I did write it on a computer, so <laughs> not that not that it feels not that it feels uh, repetitive or mechanic, but it has that kind of. It evokes that kind of, uh, yeah. un uh, I guess, like a fractal image. Yeah. Well, um, I like the idea of light motifs uh, being repeated, and each time the image is repeated, there's a slight change. So the story doesn't go in a straight line, so it goes like a spiral, like that. And the spiral gets uh, smaller and smaller, and then there's a point. That That's the way I saw the story structurally. But, uh, it seems like a story that must have been fun to write. Yes, it was, uh, although it made me kind of nervous to... Uh, <laughs> well, that's always good. I like it. Where it was coming from. It was, uh, I didn't quite know. Maybe it's, it's a story that uh, is truly science fictive. I don't, I'm not sure. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. Now, uh, what are you working on now? I'm working on a novel. Oh, good. Yes. yes. Do you, do we, can you tell us a little bit about oh, it? Oh, absolutely not. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I know, I feel that no many writers who believe uh, that uh, even speak of what you're working on, it diffuses what you're... you're, you're yeah, it's, you should only write when you're at your desk. When you mm -hmm. talk about a book, you're, uh, you're uh, using up some of your creative juice somehow. Uh, and also, it's a betrayal because of yourself. Because when you're in the middle of the book, you uh, you don't always you can't always predict what's going to happen the next day's writing. And you say, "Oh, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that." This, <laughs> and when when you're really sitting there biting your nails and writing is very hard. I, you know, Thomas Mann said. A writer is a per defined a writer as a person who finds writing difficult, <laughs> and I certainly subscribe to that. Uh, it's uh, it can be transporting and glorious, but it, it's there's always hard work involved. Well, I've been speaking with E. L. Doctorow, and he has transported us to many glorious places with his latest collection of stories. It's all the time in the world. Thank you for speaking with me, Edgar. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.